Welcome back to Conversations of the Leaky Cauldron, episode 13, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, chapters 25, 26, 27, and 28, The Beetle at the Bay, Seen and Unforeseen, The Centaur and the Sneak, Snape's Worst Memory, and back with me, as usual, are Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Wes. Welcome back, Sarah. Nice to have you, too. Good to be back. Greetings. Yo. All right, well, so... Last time we did quite a few chapters, but we didn't hit everything that we thought we wanted to. We we got quite into detail with the Eye of the Snake. We talked a little bit about uh, Hagrid's giant problems, but we didn't talk much about St. Mungo's Christmas at the Ward, Ward or the new art of occlumency, which we're just now finding out is a thing. And so... Sarah, just because you sort of brought that up last time, was there one of these particular chapters that you thought we might start with? What appeals to you? Christmas, even though St. Patrick's time, St. Mungo's, Occlumency, and then, you know, we'll see where we get to. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have uh, an opening question of some kind. I do think that we should talk about um, uh, meeting Neville and... um, learning about Neville's family um, at St. Mungo's. That seems important. Um, I mean, Wes, you may have, you may have had an impression. I I thought um, I was really struck by um, uh, the moment when Ron and Hermione are so floored at what they've um, learned. And then Harry acknowledges that he's known for a long time. And um, I don't know, it just seemed like a really, beautiful moment um, of kind of kinship between him and Neville that um, I don't think we see very often. And then later in the, in our conversation, I I do think we should talk about what exactly occlumency is. And uh, I think it's a really fascinating part of magic um, and, and this world. So, so I, those were, that's why I thought we should kind of go back and those seem like important pieces to me. Yeah, I'm pretty interested in what you have to say on Neville too, Wes. You've sort of championed the Neville cause as we've gone through these books and found him very interesting. And I recall earlier when we found out uh, the fact about his parents in general, asking you whether that was a sort of part of the appeal of him to you. And now we we sort of get uh, additional new information uh, about him and see him when we might not otherwise have wanted to see him and learn about something in a way we might not otherwise have wanted to learn about it. And so I guess I agree with Sarah. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about running into Neville and his parents at St. Mungo's and that, that sort of tragic moment where his mother gives him the gum wrapper and he he surreptitiously puts it into his pocket. That's sort of even making me sad mentioning it at this moment. Uh, it's yeah I think Harry comments on it being like one of the least funny things he's ever seen um and I don't know I mean there seems to be a a change that comes over Neville after this moment uh he's uh or is it after it's shortly after this that we hear about the breakout from uh Azkaban isn't it maybe that's the moment it really sort of shifts uh for him that he's like suddenly a very serious student and um working really hard on all of his um, Dumbledore's army activities. Uh, but I think, you know, here he's like taken by surprise. You know, he's not the only 
character we're surprised to meet there, of course, is also Gilderoy Lockhart, uh, who's still signing autographs. <laughs> um, but I don't know, like he's he's a fascinating character because he is kind of a, a reflection of Harry Potter, right? He's the sort of the life that Harry maybe could have had if he was like the normal kid. Um, but it shows you that there's sort of these little elements, even in the most sort of ordinary life, right? That there's secrets there. And in Neville's case, a really big one, you know, something you would never expect just, just looking at him and kind of seeing his, his sort of personality. Um, and I think that that little Drupal's blowing gum wrapper is kind of a neat symbol for all of that, you know, and his grandma tries to tell him to, you know, oh, just take it, whatever it is. But like, it does matter to him. He cares about it clearly. And, um, and Harry sees that too. He sees him keep it in his pocket. So Harry's pretty perceptive there. I like that you bring up this, the theme that is, I think, also going to be a theme today of the seen and the unforeseen in this magical world. Because, of course, magic itself and the process which causes it to happen, like gravity, is unforeseen. But also bringing up that there's so much underlying what's happening with all these characters. Uh, again, especially because we've talked so much about the sort of complicated emotions that these these uh, students have been dealing with and that we also have been personally dealing with and that there's there's so much underneath the surface that you would never expect that has led to the surface being the way that it is. But Sarah, what struck you about this St. Mungo's visit and this weird plant that we see delivered, Neville and his grandmother, so imposing with that wonderful hat and um, <laughs> his mother and also Gilderoy Lockhart, I had forgotten. Uh, I don't know how I could uh, how, with how substantial a character he is, but uh, I had, you know, uh, maybe suppressed or repressed that memory about him. Uh, but yeah, what did you find? What did you see? What did you derive from this? Well, okay, there were a few things at the hospital that I thought were were funny. Um, obviously, the moment with Neville was extremely touching. I think the one where his mom gives him the the gum wrapper, like you you have both mentioned, that I was listening to, and it made me tear up a little bit actually in the in the car like yeah to me it, I think what it what it symbolizes too is like there's a lot of things that we overlook um and like you said Wes and I think one of the things that we tend to overlook is how wide the world is and um Rowling gives us these moments like the Quidditch World Cup and the time in the ministry to uh, at the beginning of this book, just to remind to remind us, like the things that are at stake um, are much bigger um, than your test. Um, that the world that she's created is much larger and more complex than the sliver of it that we see at Hogwarts. And I just, uh, on, on like a funny note, I loved the uh, stitches conversation um, where. Uh, they try like muggle medicine and the, the wizards are just very confused as to why people think that you could do that. <laughs> you could like stitch up uh, an open wound. And um, I, I, I found that funny um, on the one hand, but I also remember thinking that like the language around that was super interesting that like to them, you can't just stitch it up. You can't just like sew it back together, you know, like the healing for them in this, 
in this world requires something like deeper and more significant, maybe more uh, like fundamental and material. And it, I was reminded of that when Ferenz, um is the, he's the new uh, divination teacher. And he says like, from the perspective of the centaurs, the magical world has been like basically in like a, uh, a pause, like a timeout between wars. And uh, it made me think of like the healing that we saw and the way that like there are things in the magical world that you can't get better from, you know, just like there are in this world. Right. But um, there just seemed to be like a little bit more resignation in their world that like there's some things that magic can't fix or their magic medicine can't fix. You know, like when, when, when people use the words magic with regard to medicine in our world, they're talking about like a miracle, right? Or, man, that doctor really worked his magic, AKA like knowledge of science and skill and experience. But in this magical world, do they have science? Like, I guess, uh, do they have, is there medicine magical or is it just medicine? I don't know. I, I thought that was super interesting because um, it seemed like an unlikely place to have um, both humor and uh, like really sad moments. Um, and and like the whole thing about the the plants kind of being something that they see but they don't fully see. You know, I think that is a, that's a good point about the themes, like all of these things that are just beneath the surface, like emotions and stuff. Yeah, I agree. What I I think, and I don't mean to beat the same drum as usual, but I suppose laying out a theme and seeing evidence for it is also important. But again, I see a lot of the negative effects and the darkness of the use of magic in this hospital. That's what you make me think of. Gilderoy Lockhart's backfiring memory spell, this devil snare being used for uh, malicious purposes. Um, And also, of course, what happened to Neville's parents um, you know, God forbid. Um, and, and that what seems to have been the initial magic of this world is the escape into a world that is in some way superior to our world. But I think what we're seeing here is sort of a regression towards the norm. And that even though the world is magical, it is subject to the same sort of interplay or fight or struggle between good and evil. And that it is also subject to sort of like the limitations or the, the expanse of human nature and that um, people misuse what they have. And, and, and also there is not a remedy to everything like Harry's emotions, right? Like there's justice still needs to be served to relieve him of this feeling. There's no, there's no spell to do away with that. Or even if there is, it's sort of like a, a way out that's in a, inappropriate. But uh, well, hey, I, I didn't know what you thought about that. Uh, Wes, but I also wonder, I don't know if I'm yet ready to broach this, but maybe we are ready to broach this because Sarah sort of mentioned it, uh, the relationship between science and magic in this world, because I, I too find myself fairly perplexed by it. These, these magical folks seem to not understand science very well. And I know we talked about this a little bit once, um, like what would a Hermione do or what would somebody do who turned their back on the magical world and returned to the regular world? Like, would it be like returning to the ma- from the, uh, to the Matrix from the real world in the Matrix series or 
you know, because, and what does it mean that stitches won't work on Arthur Weasley and that Molly gets so upset about that? Is she simply wrong or is there just some, something that does not work between these worlds? I'm not sure where to go with that science and magic thing exactly. I mean, it seems like the world is sort of one whole uh, in Rowling's perspective and the, the magical world is like nested within the real world somehow um, and sort of fencing out the real world or rather the muggle world, right? But I think in this case, like the stitches physically don't work because of something to do with the snake's venom, I think is the explanation there. Like there would be potentially some kind of scientific understanding that could be arrived at about most, if not all of the magic. Cause I don't want to go so far as to say that like, you know, Lily Potter's love is reducible to some kind of scientific formula or what, whatever that would look like, you know, but maybe it's like the other way around. Like maybe our idea of science is just not like magical enough. You know, maybe we need to sort of infuse the, the sorts of um, material explanations with a, a degree of, of the sort of uh, meaning or, or whatever it is that, that she is able to impart um, through her, her sacrifice. Right. So I'm not sure what to do with that exactly. Like, I think it's a question that's hovering around in a lot of, you know, the, the book is about learning magic. So in some sense, there has to be like a, a I don't know, a, a kind of formula. Right. And these spells, they seem to be verbal, but also emotional in many ways. Um, in, in terms of Occlumens is like kind of the opposite. It's like the, the draining out of all emotion. Um, and we see another good example of, of that thing which can't be undone where you know, Snape, he's, he always takes out certain memories to, to prevent uh, Harry from, from accidentally seeing them, right? Because these are things that he can't change, but that he has to sort of live with. Um, and he wants to keep them private. Um, I, I find that to be a really interesting, like, you know, sort of lead up to the inevitable moment, <laughs> inevitable moment when Harry does look in the Snape's pensive uh, and sees that, that jarring memory of his, his, uh, his father and, and his friends as, as kids. Um, I, I kind of forgot the other thing. Um, if, if you could remind me what it was, I, I could answer it, but I, it's, it's gone now. Sorry. That's okay. I think that was a per a perfectly good place to get to. Um, but Sarah, just because we jumped to occlumency, um, I, I have a question about that pensieve. So something always told to Harry is that before the before bed, he is to relieve himself of all emotions or to calm his mind. A, why do you think they don't teach him how to brew a pensieve? And B, does that mean, I mean do you see the pensieve as a positive use of magic or potentially like a negative use, like, like Lotus for the Lotus eaters, like a way to get rid of potentially charged memories in order to focus for some amount of time? What, what do you think about that? And is that also a mark of respect from Snape to Harry that potentially he thinks Harry might break into his mind because of his encounters with the Dark Lord, regardless of what he says to him often? I mean, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure um, if I think Le Pensive is like a, 
like a shortcut you mean is that sort of what you mean like is it uh is it, are they playing fair by one of them having one and well that's just what i'm I, wondering I if, if it's so imperative for harry to sort of clear his mind before bed why would it not be the case i mean perhaps it is the case that pensieve is is only used for adult mages or maybe it's an even more advanced piece of magic i'm unclear i guess you are literally taking a piece of your mind your thought your memory out of you out of you for some time and and do i mean i suppose i i still don't even understand the mechanics of it too can you look upon it and then reflect on it and then understand it better um but just moving away from getting too in the weeds on that yes potentially that is what i'm wondering about it um I guess I think yeah. I, I think um, it, uh, to use an example um, when I teach my seniors uh, like what I prefer for their essay writing, I tell them that like they have to diet from certain words that there are certain words that are banned uh, they're not allowed to use them in their essays because they're a lazy language right um, and uh, I always have one or two students who are like really resistant to that. Not necessarily because they can't, but because it's more work. Um, it means having to reformulate your sentences, how to like learn to actually think about your word choice, particularly your verb choice as, as often as you use a verb, as opposed to just like banging out a paper, you know, and uh, they're annoyed by that. And there's a couple kids who are always like really litigious and want to have arguments about, well, this verb is really important in this particular context. And I usually grant that. Yeah, but like, but the purpose of this is to learn. The purpose is not necessarily to never use the, uh, uh, never use the, the verb again. The purpose is to learn that there are better verbs and to like build a habit. And so I guess I sort of thought that like, Snape's the teacher in this situation. Um, and same with when Dumbledore uses it. Um, like, presumably Snape knows how to clear his mind, right? Um, without the use of the pensive, right? Like, it's like uh, yeah. teaching, you know, teaching kids grammar without giving them Grammarly, right? Uh, or something like that. Uh, I, I guess I just, I see it as like that, like the pensive is maybe a shortcut, but it also in the shortcut you don't have like the emotional uh or um the the self-discipline practice that comes along with clearing your mind before bed you can just like use your wand and take some memories out but i don't i also don't think that that's what he means when he says clear your mind i don't mean i don't think that means like eliminate like take memories out i think it means change the degree to which your emotions are attached to your memories right like uh like calm your calm your heart uh not just calm your mind like if the pensive seems more protective than what he's asking harry to practice um and more more temporary right like uh, clearing your mind doesn't mean eliminating the memory it just means be like finding a place to store and like like uh uh it doesn't mean it doesn't mean taking it out it means like maybe learning to figure it out I don't know I don't know what do you guys think yeah I, I kind of I tend to agree like from what it's 
it sounds like Snape is talking about um, shielding the content of one's mind um, from like being um, manifest, right? Like through like eye eye contact is clearly really important for uh, occlumency or for legitimacy, and um, I think that's because you know like when Harry looks in Dumbledore's eyes, that's the moments when he has those, those sharpest sort of um, passions that seem to leap through into him from, from the Dark Lord, as Snape calls him, right? And I, I think that that's, there's something to that. It's like the, um, the connection between people um, seems to be largely conveyed through the kinds of emotions that we can read and and we can do that in lots of different ways, but obviously, like when your eyes actually meet, that's like somehow a little bit magnified. It's like you're sort of reading each other in that moment, um, and there there's really nowhere to hide. So, whatever Snape's talking about, yeah, it seems to have more to do with um, sort of divesting one the contents of your mind from from your kind of emotional like baggage, and and that's that seems to be connected with you know, privacy, um, and, and that's clearly a huge thing for Snape. Um, we can kind of assume with Harry that whatever he's putting in the pensive has to do with, like, you know, order of the phoenix type business, like stuff Harry would really want to know about, <laughs> um, and maybe things like, you know, that would be uh, potentially incriminating for, for Snape, right? We still, we still <laughs> want him to be, like, a, a traitor, at this point after six you know five books or whatever but um but it turns out no it's it's just these private memories of when he was a kid and when he was vulnerable um that he wants to protect hair protect himself from very seeing i really like what you say about the eyes because of course that's the major difference between harry and his father besides their attitudes and the fact that harry actually in many ways has more in common with snape we'll soon find out than he does with his father that his father's a bit more like Draco uh, Malfoy than even potentially Harry as, you know, more of a bully than somebody who was picked on, more of a stud than, um, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, somebody who might have been mistreated or lower on the status hierarchy, as it were, which was a connection I was making earlier between, it's interesting because Ron being sort of poor Hermione, having her big teeth and being a muggle, Neville and his sort of lack of talent, Luna and being crazy um, or perceived as crazy and Harry, you know, they're all people that have been picked on. And it's interesting that that sort of emotion is bubbling over, but I just wanted to mention that it's so interesting that Snape has to stare into Lily's eyes when he looks at Harry and that uh, he's still so incapable of seeing the difference between Harry and his father and the similarities between Harry and Lily and also Harry and Snape, though it turns out that Snape, perhaps this is part of his problem, totally pegged uh, Harry's father right, but totally does not peg Harry right. Um, and it that just also made me think of another connection between them. I mean, besides the fact that they're obviously getting closer together than either of them ever wanted, and also Harry is getting closer to him, I would argue, even than Sirius or Lupin, who he did Boggart lessons with, because Harry, because Snape is literally opening his mind and staring into it, and Harry is learning to fight this off. Also, the fact I, I see a connection between how does Snape know this and what does he do? Well, he's working for the Order and nobody can lie to the Dark Lord. Obviously, he is a very talented 
Aquamans or and uh, who can stand against the legitimacy of Voldemort. So he's incredible how talented he is. And everybody tells Harry to learn from Snape. Why? Not only because this is important, because he's, I think probably he is literally the best in the world at Aquamancy. And, you know, it's like a secret talent that we did not know that he had. And so to me, that's even more impressive, say, than James's um, secret ability to be an animagus. Um, but just to say that Harry has stood against the Dark Lord in the same way that Snape has stood against the Dark Lord, or I should say he who must not be named, not to give myself away too fast. Um, but that the, the connection between them is, is getting deeper and deeper and deeper while they're also hating each other more than they ever have. Um, so I guess I wanted to see whether you saw that too, Sarah, and whether you agree with that, whether you disagree with that. Um, what do you think of these lessons? I mean, it reminds me so much of Lupin, but also the exact opposite in many ways. Yeah. Um, no, I, th I think uh, I thought what you said was interesting. One of the things you, well, I thought a lot of all of what you said was interesting, but that like <laughs> he has to look, he has to look at the outside form of this boy and see James and look at the eyes and see Lily. I mean, I think knowing what we know about the, what's to come, the cognitive dissonance in, in Snape seems, high right like um <laughs> right <laughs> like it just it just seems like uh and, and to be to be frank I sympathize with him more in this moment because I know how much Snape hates being in the room in this room with Harry um uh and I thought it was funny um uh there was a moment when Harry in the I think it was the last chapter that we read when Harry kind of talked back to him and Snape did not uh, punish him. He just uh, right. kind of smirked and, and, and moved on. Um, it's funny to me that they're getting close. I do think they are um, They're. I don't, I don't know. Harry gets awfully close with, with Remus Lupin, but I think what he's looking for is a way to protect himself. Um, in that third book and and Lupin provides that both like emotional protection and the skill right and there's something about what Harry's looking for here that is not he's not looking for like a warm and fuzzy mentor um he's angry and it's sort of only fitting that he vibes with the other angry person on staff right like that they spend all of this extra time together I think that that's fitting um I also think, like what you said about Snape being really good at this, given what we know he does, I think we have to assume that it's the only reason that he has been able to do this task of kind of being a double agent for as long as he has been able to do it and to survive, right? That like, this has to be the th the one thing that he is better at than potions. Um, right. And it's clear that he's good at a lot of stuff, right? He's probably crushing his Defense Against the Dark Arts, OWL, in that memory. Like, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I actually, I actually kind of liked that Harry had to do these, these things. Uh, the one thing that, that kind of pissed me off uh, in the first Aquamancy chapter, and I say this because I, I, I fear that I do it every now and then as a teacher, is 
expect a student to be able to do something without explaining to them what they should be doing. Like I still don't really understand when, when Snape points his wand at Harry and says like legilimens, what exactly is he supposed to be doing? Right. The first few times that's what he's like, what do you want me to do? Right. <laughs> like, and then I, that I think is shitty. <laughs> and I, I thought maybe, uh, was a little bit vindictive of Snape in the beginning. But the second chapter where they're in lessons, I thought, I thought like, man, this is the best thing that could happen to their relationship, even though literally neither of them want it. Um, it's like the, it's like the, the dean of students and the, the kid who's always in trouble, you know? But yeah. yeah, what do you guys think? Yeah, I was wondering, yes, it was. Um... Sorry, it's dropping out of my head right now while, while I, I think about it. Sarah, again, you said something and uh, multiple things that were very interesting about uh, Snape and the sort of cognitive dissonance that he feels. Um, and, and oh, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you, Wes. What do you think it means that he is, of course, the potions master, but there's yet some art unknown that he knows even better than that? Is that some metaphor for, like, when you are taught by a master, they – or, or by any good teacher that they confer lessons to you beyond their normal subject matter? Or, or did you see it differently from that? What, what did you see with all of this? I, I think it's possible that Snape is a great teacher. Um, although I don't think from Harry's perspective, we really, I, I mean, whoops, we, I agree that, um, like Sarah said, he, he doesn't really explain much there. Uh, However, yeah, maybe he's a good teacher, um, as well as just being like generally a really good learner, right? He clearly is that. He clearly is a hard worker and knows a ton of stuff. Um, and and yeah, it does work out. Like he does end up teaching Harry um, quite a bit, seems like. Um, and, you know, maybe it's the nature of certain things that they aren't, you know, directly teachable in in the same way, right? You sort of have to learn them through this kind of harrowing process, it seems like. Um, and then I think goes, I think it's a kind of an interesting parallel, how we have like the secret lessons with Snape, which are masked as being, um, you know, um, what's the words, you know, extra remedial potions. potions. Yeah, remedial, that's right. Yeah, remedial potions, um, actually occlumency, which is the art of like hiding, essentially, right? So there's like layers of hiding happening. And then there's the parallel to that in the, um, the the defense against the dark arts classes that Harry secretly has up in the room of requirement. So there, like you know, ah. even as you know, Snape pries into his mind. That's one thing that for whatever reason he doesn't find there. Um, so maybe Harry is like effectively hiding the the most important thing that he needs to hide. Um, however, he's doing that. I'm not sure. Or maybe it's just like you know that's important for the story that that get discovered a different way. Uh, and then we have the awesome scene of Dumbledore taking the fall and uh, flying away on a phoenix feather, which is sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I think we definitely have to talk about that. That was a pretty epic scene. Um, but what you say makes me makes me also wonder whether sort of conversation and truth in teaching is just as much about what is concealed as what is made open. And also, when you say the word harrowing about 
uh, Harry having to sort of reveal and confront his own experiences with somebody else present. It sort of sounds like therapy or the sort of way one Ganothi say Altons, one sort of knows one's self and that how one learns to lie to someone, it sounds very sort of Odyssean to me, is that one has to sort of understand oneself first. One needs to know the truth before one can lie and sort of a platonic way of saying that one must know the good or know how to do good who could worse do evil. Um, but Sarah, I don't know if you want to comment on that or you want to jump into this terrible, awesome, awe-inspiring, awful uh, uh, Dumbledore scene where we finally, I think for the first time, get to see him really, really do some serious magic. And even then we don't really see it. I mean, Dumbledore's got style, right? Isn't that what Shacklebolt <laughs> says? Uh, we disagree on a great number of things. But you've got to admit, Dumbledore's got style. And I think Shacklebolt yeah. says that in the movie, but it's actually the um, one of the headmasters on the portraits in the story who... Yeah, I th it might even be Black Sands Esther. I can't remember who. It's the disagreeable one. Oh, now, now I'm the person quoting the movie. I, I definitely, I, I think it is a, um, it's the, it's the portrait that he shushes um, earlier in the scene. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, he, I love that scene. I think that's one of my favorite scenes in the in the movie. But, um, I, I'd love to to talk about that. I think. Well, let's unpack that. Uh, what do we think about the fact that um, Cornelius Fudge is there, Umbridge is there, um, McGonagall is there, Shacklebolt, Shacklebolt, who nobody knows is a double agent, is there. I'm forgetting the name of the other or, but he did outstanding on all of his OWL, so he's incredible, is there. And, um, and then sort of what plays out. So at first, Harry is brought there because they think they've opened, they've found him leaving the room of requirement and thus been part of an illicit club and so they can expel him. And apparently this requires multiple aurors, Dolores Umbridge and uh, Cornelius Fudge. Again, we see this sort of overreaction of political force towards something that would ordinarily be well within Dumbledore's power and probably some Dumbledore would know about and probably some Dumbledore would not care about. But then when they find out the name of it, because the room of requirement apparently serves both good and evil, just serves whoever needs it and gave, uh, oh yeah, and the other person there is of course Cho Chang's friend who ratted them out and now has sneak and boils across her face and Harry appreciated that. And I suppose I appreciated that too. Um, but she, uh, um, but the, the ministry officials are overreacting here, but they find out that the name of the club is Dumbledore's army and then Dumbledore takes the fall. So, well, maybe you can take it from there, uh, uh, Wes or Sarah, and sort of either you can start unpacking what we saw or, or, or just keep it moving. I don't know which. I mean, oh, go ahead, Wes. No, you go for it. I was just going to say that um, to your point about um, the like ridiculous amount of crackdown happening here, I mean, it's insane that the, the Minister of Magic comes to uh comes to hogwarts at the at the possibility of expelling harry potter um that's nuts right and that so Absolutely. the whole of their ability like that's just uh i think that's the height of fear and um i i think that an interesting parallel is when um uh the dolores umbridge makes 
it against the rules to read anything from the quibbler, right? And uh, and Hermione smiles and she says, like, literally, she could not have done anything more, uh, anything better than to make this thing um, illegal or like against the rules. Like it it, it made the article spread like wildfire. Um, and I, I just that crackdown, that that abuse of power. What it, what it said to me is that like um, freedom is a really powerful thing, and um, I think we often, you know, if you turn on the television or read the news, it seems like there's a lot of people in a lot of different places who think like freedom is under attack, right? Well, it seems to me like like freedom is incredibly powerful and resists like the impulse to free thought. Um, to seeking knowledge, to, um, you know, uh, speaking your truth, like this is more powerful than any of these attempts to crack down, right? To fall in line, to make orthodox, right? And, and I, I just, I think that that, I thought that was really powerful. Um, I don't mean to be political, because I think that this is something that, that, uh, you know, both ends of the political spectrum in this country are guilty of, but like, maybe we need to talk more as a society about what, what freedom actually means. Um, you know, are you just free from things or are you free to do things or free, free for things? But, but um, it, it just struck me as funny. Like the whole, they look so weak. Um, the, the more they, they look um, um, cartoony, like cartoon villains. I just kept seeing like Mr. Burns from the Simpsons as um, the minister of magic being like, oh, this is falling up better than I could have devised. Right. Like, like <laughs> it is, it's such a, it's so pathetic. Um, and then, and oh my God, God, Percy Weasley, what a douchebag. Um, anyway, that, that's, that was all I wanted to say about that, but go ahead, Wes. No, that's, that was awesome. Awesome. I I love Percy in this scene because he's like so frantically uh, writing down everything, um, you know, Dumbledore's confession and everything, and they and they all assume that that's like that's what's that's what's important here, right? It's like having it in writing, having it in triplicate, and and he's got the um, the gall to uh, to laugh, you know, in his face at his uh, boss's stupid joke or whatever. And, and um, and Dumbledore then it just sort of throws that little snag in, right? Like that he's he's not going to come quietly. It's so great. He's like he puts it in air quotes when he says it too. Come quietly. I am afraid I'm not going to come quietly at all. So it's like you have these kind of interesting images of writing throughout the series. Like we even saw a little one there with with Gilderoy Lockhart again, like still autographing stuff even though he has no idea what it means. And I think it's similar here. Well, you mentioned the quibbler. That that's an interesting one too, where Hermione sort of flexes her power and uses like journalism in an interesting way. Um, her careless, you know, writing down everyone's name and pinning it to the wall with the words Dumbledore's army turns out to be really effective, actually, like very serendipitous, because then Dumbledore can just claim it, right? And then he can just unleash. Um, not only his wit, but also, yeah, like his incredible overpowered magical ability here um, to the point, yeah, that he's just like, oh, like they won't, 
<laughs> they won't remember what happened. Um, so you're going to have to just like pretend that you don't either. Right. But he has like not only power, but also like incredible finesse to not hurt the people in the room who he doesn't want to hurt and to not seriously hurt all the people who like want to take him down. It's just incredible. It's just, it's not even fair. You know, it's great. You seem to be harboring one thing delusion that I'll, I'll come quietly said, yeah, Sarah. I was just going to say like, to your point was his restraint. I think in that moment where he, he doesn't hurt them. He just kind of confounds everyone. And uh, he is able to, protect the children and Minerva McGonagall, um, that restraint is, it's so deft. And like, uh, it makes me think of like a, a tennis player or like a skier, you know, like how, how nimble they are. And it, it, it just, I think it's a great foil for like the giant, um, like ridiculous bringing down the hammer on something small, um, like a student organization, right? Um, student organizations have historically been quite problematic, uh, at least in, in, in this country, you know, they, that's where the civil rights movement started, but they, you know, uh, I, I think it, it, it throws into really sharp relief how, how bad ministry is, right? Um, I just thought that just to add, add on. I agree. And just to add to that, he's quite opposite from Voldemort here, right? Of course, Voldemort wields power over life and death, and he he callously kills. Whereas Dumbledore, in sort of a sort of Dante's vision of God the Father sort of way, manifests power, intelligence, and love all at once because he uses his power and restrains it in a skillful way in order not to permanently harm, as you said, these people, but only to keep them from seeing what they he wants them not to see. And also sort of as a figure of the divine, Dante sort of circles around the, the idea that the language of the divine is truth, to speak the truth, and that the language of hell is sort of uh, the language of lies or beautiful lies. And so Dumbledore leaving Hogwarts, to me, feels symbolic of the truth leaving the education when Dolores Umbridge is there, who's, who's even kept from the headmaster's quarters. And the idea that a phoenix takes him, which is itself a symbol for new order, and is also, uh, those two words are in the title, the order of the phoenix, it's as if um, Babel is about to fall, um, and people are going to start babbling, literally, because there's, there's no truth, just to add the speech element um, to the writing element that Wes was adding earlier. Um, and, you know, the phoenix is, of course, aerial in the same way that words are aerial, the spoken word, and the same with spells. But um, he just, he's interesting that he is here, protagonist, the antagonist of, of Voldemort, and um, that he, he disappears at the same time that sort of legitim- the legitimacy of the political intervention within the school disappears as well. And he says that Fudge will soon want him back, which, which you know, sort of strikes me as, again, possibly a symbol that the a political system that gives way to lies rather than truth is going to destabilize so dang fast that they're going to want that truth back as soon as possible. I don't know if that was a question, just an add on. I mean, 
Um, I don't I don't necessarily have anything to say in response to that either. I think that's, that's a good point uh, for sure. Um, I guess um, what did we? I I wanted to see like what did we make of the? Uh, um, I'll open the can of worms just because I joked about it last time. Um, what did we make of like the the dynamic between um, Harry and Cho over the over the last few chapters? Right, like do we have any sense? Is this just like really bad teenage dating, or did I, I found it incredibly hilarious? But um, maybe that was just me being unkind. I don't know. I, I found it very uh, painful. I, w- I want to ask about that too. Uh, yeah, so I'll ask you, Wes. Like, are they together or are they not? Because it sort of seems like they, <laughs> they're on the rocks. But I wasn't even aware that they were together. It seemed like they had a date, and then they were sort of arguing with each other all the time. And yeah, what do you make of all this, dude? It's it's so confusing. It, uh, it's <laughs> that's like that's the least of the problems, though, right? Because it's like <laughs> <laughs> they do go out. It seems like. Um, but the problem is that Harry has this uh, knack for, you know, saying the exact wrong thing to her. Like throughout that conversation, um, it's it's set up, yeah, to be like so painful to watch him stumble around, you know, trying to say things that he thinks are going to be like not a problem, and then watching them just become enormous problems as like the words leave his mouth. Right. So the main one seems to be that um, he like needs to go talk to Hermione about whatever mysterious awesome thing that she wants to do. Um, But of course, like Cho becomes really upset by that. Like he can't understand why, you know, she wants to talk about, you know, Cedric Diggory or whatever, maybe just because that's, you know, something that they in a way share, you know, at this point there, that's something that actually, needs to be discussed here um but it's in such an artificial setting right and i think harry even makes the connection it's like reminiscent of of umbridge with all the frills in the tea room or whatever so there's something like just impeding um their attempts to kind of get closer here um the the pain that that you you're sort of alluding to like yeah i i totally feel that um, it's one of the awkwardest, it's got to be one of the awkwardest, you know, things to read um, in any, like, popular fantasy book, although I'm not super familiar with the ones that have come out since then. Maybe people have taken it further. I don't know. <laughs> God, I hope not. I don't know how much I could bear, but yeah, and the name of that coffee shop is Madame Puttyfoots, I believe. What a name. Um, but I, I wonder if, yeah, so the, you bring up the Cedric connection. And obviously, Harry's very similar to Cedric in many ways. Also a seeker, also tri-wizard champion in the same way that Cedric was, but of course alive, not dead. And, uh, well, I just, I guess I wonder, Sarah, I, my first take on her bringing up Cedric, that, that that was for the same reason that she sort of brought up Roger Davies. I, I do understand the need for them to talk in that way, but in that circumstance, like, it, it makes me feel like she sort of used Harry, and I feel like that's what he feels too, and I... I don't know that I think that's illegitimate because it's like, I think he wants her to like him, especially after him sort of losing out to Cedric or, or, or missing or missing his chance with her because Cedric moved faster just as he did as a seeker. Um, 
But that uh, I feel like that's part of the issue too. He wonders whether she actually likes him for who he is. And then not to mention the fact that of course her friend is the one who gets Dumbledore sent out from this, this castle. And so that, you know, there's that element as well. But yeah. So what, what do you think about her asking about Cedric? What was that? Well, I guess, it, you know, it could be to shove it in his face. Um, she doesn't seem to be vindictive or manipulative. It's, you know, she doesn't strike me as that kind of girl. So I think sure. um, I, I sort of remember the part where um, Hermione describes all the emotions that she's feeling, right? And uh, um, And I think it's pretty clear that you know, I thought there there was a, a funny moment actually as as a bit of a not it's not a long tangent, but when uh the Gryffindor Quidditch team get demolished and um uh Ron lets in like fourteen goals or whatever and um <laughs> Harry is sensitive he's Harry Harry like uh the the narrator says something like the common room was like a funeral afterwards, right? Some kind of like profane funeral. Um, and Harry is like sensitive enough to his friend to, I, I think that the narrator says like that he gave him a little extra time to go upstairs by himself so that he could fake being asleep and didn't have to. And Harry like did that on purpose, you know, give Ron a, a little bit extra time to go up to bed so that he didn't have to make his friend talk about the game like that's a that's incredible emotional sensitivity right um but he seems to fundamentally lack that with with Cho because he's like so in his own head about it I think I think what we see is like Harry likes her and doesn't account for the possibility that she's in her head either right like um she is she is not dimensional in his mind she is She's a she's a snitch. She's the thing to catch, right? And um, and I I think that that's maybe what damns their relationship from the start is that all he doesn't he doesn't really see her as a full person. Um, and I you know that's not his fault, right? Um, teenagers are like biologically programmed to think that they are the center of the universe. And that everybody else is merely a character in the story of their life. Um, and they're not, like, so they're just not at a, a point developmentally where they they recognize, like, he knows that she's, a, she's good at Quidditch. But, like, what else does he really know about her other than she's really pretty? And her being there makes his stomach do somersaults. Like, I just don't think, and maybe this is intentional or maybe this is not intentional. She's not a well-developed character. And so when, at least in, in my, in my view, I, I think, I think we get all of this experience from, from his, his view, right? Like um, she might have really like complex reasons for bringing up Cedric. Like it is the thing that they have in common, but you know, if I'm Cho and I'm a particularly sensitive and emotional young woman, I might be afraid that the boy that I like thinks that I like him because um, uh, he's a substitute. And I might not know how um, 
to make it clear to him that he's not a substitute. So I want to bring it up and I want to talk about it to make it seem like I'm cool or to make it seem like we're, we're moving on together. Um, you know, there's like all kinds of reasons why she might want to talk about Cedric, but like we only get Harry's assumption that like she just brought it up as a, as like a way to make him feel like shit. Right. Um, and, and it makes sense developmentally. It makes sense where he is as a 15 year old boy, no offense. Um, but like, I, I just, I don't think that he sees her as anything more than like a prize to win. And as a result, yeah. That's so sophisticated because from what we'll learn about James and how much he wants Lily Evans and how he plays around with that snitch or what we've learned yeah. about that, it seems like that is something he shares in common with his father. And I, and it's what, I that's what his dad was doodling after the test was L-E. a snitch and the L-E, right? Like it's right. like, which is why I think it's kind of cool. I, it's why I think it's kind of cool that like Ginny is now a seeker, right? Uh, even though she also says, like, I don't really like being seeker, but she's pretty freaking good at it. And she just wants to score goals. And he's starting to see her as a as like a full person who has an agenda of her own, who's got strengths and weaknesses, who's got graces and flaws. And like, um, I, I just don't think, I think Cho is on a pedestal as this pretty girl that, um, you know, it, it, it's not, impre- it's not mature in any way to me um and i i think i think when i what the hell do i know you guys are like you actually have a a girlfriend slash a wife like i you know i i could be wrong but i think when you chase things you end up maybe devaluing the thing that that you chase and i say that maybe from some experience where like I, i don't know does, does that sound right? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, well, there's certain things that we yeah. chase that we objectify. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's literally what you do when you chase something, you're chasing a goal, you're chasing down the, some finish line. And I think that's just so highly sophisticated uh, that she might be worried that he is a substitute, but she likes him by his own merits and always liked him potentially more, even more. And she wants to convey that, but she has her own trouble doing that because she's never been in this situation before. Um, I, that makes me think a lot about Cloud and Ares and Zack in Final Fantasy VII, Wes, which I still have to play, and I will. I'm sorry I've been so slow on that. And, um, but, uh, but also, this, uh, the Jungians would agree with you. They, they call the initial act by which a man meets a woman or the unknown an act of projection of the imagination because the imagination is the bridge between what you know and what you don't know. Um, uh, the projection of the anima figure or the one-dimensional girl figure, like the uh, stereotypical idea of the girl and that sort of the act of getting to a real relationship is chipping away at that image and seeing the person for who they really are. And so the idea that he at 15 projects that image and cannot chip away at it at all and does not see all these sophisticated sort of emotions that Cho is having, well, I think that's totally on, and just from personal experience, I was kind of reading this story from Harry's perspective and not looking too much deeper into it. So for sure, that uh, <laughs> that immature sort of projection uh, is- And I can just, if I, if I can just add like one last thing about that, like I'm not saying that she's all mature either, right? Like the Quibbler article comes out and all of a sudden she's back holding hands with him, like kissing him on the cheek <laughs> and saying, I believe you because he's popular again. Like 
that might very well be the whole thing too. Like maybe she's a shallow little brat and she brings up Roger Davies and Cedric because she wants to show that she's cool and that, um, you don't, I don't like, um, I'm not saying that she's being mature about it either, but like there's a host of reasons why she might bring up Cedric. Um, not the least of which is she might just genuinely be sad. Um, and, and, and that like her, like Harry's inability to be on a date with her may equal her inability to be on a date with him. Right. She may just suck just as much at it. Um, and that's why it falls apart. Wes, how did we get from Dumbledore's magic all the way here? My goodness, I, we, I feel a bit like Harry changing from situation to situation. But did you, did you want to make a final comment on, on that and the Cho element or on the, the exit of Dumbledore? And then I've got just a quick funny question involving leprechauns for you too. Oh, I, I kind of think the, uh, the this, this scene where um, Fred and George have their great, you know, fireworks show uh, um, is, is one I definitely wanted to talk about, at least briefly here. Um, I'm not sure. It, go for it. Yeah, make, make that leap exactly. But, I mean, to, to go back to the idea of, like, freedom, I think throughout the series they sort of represent that in a pretty awesome fashion, right, that they, you know, know the most about secret passages, how to get around. Um, rules you know as they say they they break them but like they still know that they need to not get expelled um until now 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 it's like all bets are off right um the game has just gotten way big the game board has just gotten way bigger um with Dumbledore <laughs> leaving the school and, and so they sort of just throw themselves into that right and they've been working towards it this whole time they've been like refining their craft and they just blow their entire supply of fireworks, um, you know, to make Dolores Umbridge's first day like as hilariously bad as possible for her. <laughs> and, and all of the, and what I love about it is like, you know, all of the teachers play along, like they all make Umbridge go around and, uh, and, you know, chase down the fireworks. They don't lift a finger. Um, so there's this kind of beautiful, like, extremes meeting where the teachers and the like uh, delinquents are both you know doing the same thing basically um and and really yeah for the same reason like they both have at heart like the best interests of the students and the best interests of the school um and and you know th how that sort of reflects those those people reaching their full potential like we see in this moment fred and george kind of like you know, achieving their dream, basically, um, or, or even closer to it than they've ever been. So, yeah, that, I think, is a really cool moment um, where they, uh, they have also, like, gone to the further step of making it so when you try to stop the fireworks, they just explode or multiply or who knows what else, right? Um, <laughs> apparently, they also mate uh, if, they, if they run into each other. So that, that's, that's yeah. pretty cute. Yeah, I, I think it's it's pretty great. Um, yeah, a lot of good stuff in this reading. Yeah, that just recalls to me the idea of repression, again, involving writing that you mentioned with Hermione, that when the Quibbler was banned, that was the guarantee that everybody would read it and they would be clever enough to conceal it. 
And so it, it seems like the more these people push down more, you know, Fudge and his emissary, his, his front man, Umbridge, uh, push down on the people, the more they, they sort of squeeze out of the grasp like water running through a fist. Okay, well, I mean, this has been really I, good. I don't, yeah, go on, Sarah. Oh, I was just going to say, I think when I read that passage um, with the fireworks, one of the things that struck me was like how successful Hogwarts was at teaching these kids, like all of the things that they had to learn to right. put, to make these products, right? Um, these are the kids who, in whom like a love of, learning has been in like they 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 did outside research um they did field testing these fireworks are incredible and to me that's like a, a real win for the school so i think it's interesting that they are delinquents and that they are quote unquote dropping out but they are like they are a shining achievement of like a an education that allows for um, like practical application and free thought. Anyway, I, I think, I, I know I mentioned something like that when um, Molly Weasley was so anti their joke shop, but that like just how skilled of wizards they are to put this together. I think, I think it'd been a long time since I read this. I'd seen the, seen the movie, but it's pretty cool. I'm with you, Wes. That's a pretty awesome scene. It's like they're Aristea if they were Iliadic heroes um, going, going out in that blaze of glory, indeed. Well, so I, I had, just because we've been doing the fun, magical questions at the end, and we have three big days coming up, th Pi Day tomorrow, of course, 314, um, the Ides of March, the day after, death of Julius Caesar Day, and then uh, St. Patrick's Day on the 17th. Um, and... I was just wondering if y'all were to go to a magical St. Patrick's Day gathering, what might happen? And what's sort of interesting coming from Milwaukee and Chicago from several times is they do do something magical. They turn the rivers green, um, which is pretty neat, pretty neat. And just to kind of also segue back to the idea that what's, that many of the things we do, which we explain by quote unquote science, are magical and some of the things we understand like gravity and uh, things that just work like, you know, life being generated that we to some extent can talk about like cellular replication, but we also don't really understand how DNA folds. Like a lot of this is still magic to us insofar as magic is a name for something that happens in a miraculous way, which we don't know the cause of. Um, but a long way short, just, if you were in the magical world, which perhaps you are, what sort of magical thing would you do on St. Patrick's Day? Would you t swig one back with the leprechauns? Go see uh, the Irish play uh, Quidditch or what? Start with you, Sarah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, there would definitely be fire whiskey involved. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think spending time with leprechauns would be cool, but I've definitely, just from, like, actual Irish stories, they're pretty terrible. Like, they they do some mean and nasty things, and they steal. So the movie's and like, right? I, I think, I think uh, yeah, I think 
I don't think leprechauns are like nice or safe creatures. Um, they like steal children. <laughs> that was um, oh. like the fairies of the bog. I think I think that that's what leprechauns are known for. But I could be wrong. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I would do since I, I I've been listening to a lot of Irish music recently and. Um, I, it, we don't have spring break for a while is I would like magically apparate over to Ireland um, on, on St. Patrick's day and like uh, spend the day um, hanging out to listen to music, drinking some fire whiskey. Um, and yeah, that's what I do. It's not that different from what I will do, which is like pretend like I'm in Ireland and drink real whiskey. Okay. that's pretty cool. uh that's rad i yeah as you're talking about that i was thinking about um this show have you guys ever seen um civilization by kenneth clark it's a it's a great like history series. no I, i've just heard about it though yeah it's like pretty it's pretty well known but maybe just like skipped a generation or something like it came out a while ago and it was like his journey through the history of art, basically. And he's this really erudite, you know, British dude, of course, and just like looks at art and talks about it. And it's so awesome. And so one of the first things he talks about is how, you know, after the fall of Rome, um, a lot of art is preserved, of course, through um, monasteries. And like some of the most important ones are actually up in the British Isles, like including Ireland. And so if I were to actually, you know, do it right, I would, you know, go and look at like a page of an illuminated manuscript or at, you know, some jeweled uh, breviary uh, cover uh, or at like some crucifix from back in the day um, and just like meditate on that for a while and, and contemplate it and, you know, think about the centuries that have passed and what the people's lives were like when that stuff was being made and you know, what it must have meant to them. Um, I just think, you know, art is such a cool way to study history and culture. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty caught up in lo- in literature a lot, in language, but but art, visual arts, music, like you described, or dance or something like that, all of that, and even the food, right? Like culinary arts, all of that is so, so valuable and rich, um, just like worth celebrating. Well, how about this? And we can do that first. And then we can go with Sarah to listen to some music and have a drink. But at night, I want to go see Ireland play some Quidditch and then party after that. Um, but it sounds like that sounds like a good time. And I, I am happy that this day is coming up. It is such a celebration day. And it is interesting that even in sort of such a secular world, we do have these celebrations built in and we do, you know, dress up in funny ways and do and behave in funny ways too, right? but in very comradely ways and very brotherly ways. And so I, I really hope you two have wonderful St. Patrick's Days. Um, uh, I'm, I'm actually going to a party, which uh, my girlfriend's going to cook for, so that's gonna be really tasty. She's really talented and very Hermione-esque in her spells. And, um, she, uh, and so I hope you two are also doing something. I, it sounded like you were already doing something fun as well, Sarah, when you said, your magical version's not so different from your normal version. That sounds great. Um, yeah, I'm running a I'm running a 5K in the morning, and then nice. um, 
there's like a, a you know bunch of craft breweries in my neighborhood that are all having kind of like open house for St. Patrick's Day and I'll go listen to some music for sure so that's rad well y'all in preparation for next time if we can uh make sure it depending on how moderate we are on it's a Sunday right <laughs> um how far would y'all like to get for next time? 29, 30, 31, 32. We've been doing four to six, depending on sort of their length. I, f I feel like they're a little shorter this time around, the chapters themselves. Um, what do y'all think? 33 even? or Because things start to get pretty serious in 34. I feel like maybe we should go through 33. Okay. Just because that leaves five for the, the next one as well. I mean, you're yeah. right. Like 33 through 38 is like pretty, there's a lot in that one, but I'm sorry, 34 through 38. But I feel like, I feel like five and five is probably a pretty good split for what's left. Sounds good. Yeah. So through the end of 33. Yeah. Right. All right. Cool. All right, y'all. Well, yeah. thank you. It was wonderful. Uh, cheers. Cheers. Slancha. Slancha. <laughs> nice. Slancha. Take it easy. Uh, all right. See y'all later.